you would, grab your Bible and uh, open with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. If you're using one of the Bibles under the seat in front of you, we're going to be on page 862. While you're turning there, let me just give you some background to kind of set up our time together this morning. So we're going to spend the primary portion of our time together looking at Jesus' call to the 12 apostles, where he calls the 12 apostles, he calls them to himself, he makes them his own. And you might be thinking, well, how in the world are we going to spend the next 39 minutes looking at Jesus' call to these 12 apostles? Let not your heart be troubled. We will find a way. Now, it's really important. The calling of the 12 apostles has significance for our faith today. And so my goal will be to help show you how Jesus' call to the 12 apostles has implication and application for all Christians today. It's not just something that happened in the first century. It's something that has significance for us now. And I want to do that by stepping back from this specific text. And I want us to kind of set these apostles in the context of heaven. So the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about heaven. It doesn't give us lots of details about what heaven is like. We know some, but not a lot about the new heavens and the new earth to come. Which means any detail that the Bible does give us about heaven or about the new heavens and the new earth or about the holy city, the new Jerusalem as the Bible describes it, is important. For example, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 14, we read, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Now you might be thinking, what in the world does that mean, and what in the world does that have to do with Jesus calling twelve apostles? Well, in Revelation 21, what's being referred to is what's called the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is like the old Jerusalem, the city where the temple was. It represents God living among his people. Now my point this morning is not to debate whether the new Jerusalem is actually a literal city in heaven with literal walls and literal streets of gold, or if the new Jerusalem symbolizes the gathering, the indwelling of God among his people, a.k.a. the church today. My main point is not to argue which one of those is actually true. Faithful Christians can hold either of those interpretations. But my point is to look at the foundation of the walls of this city itself, whether they're literal walls or whether it's symbolic of the, the, the people whom God has redeemed. Revelation 21 is clear that there are walls to this city, and on the walls, on these 12 walls, are written the 12 names of the apostles of the Lamb, the Lamb referring to Jesus Christ. So regardless, again, of how you interpret what the foundation is, we can all agree that the foundation of this city of God, which houses the people of God, is the 12 apostles. And that is important. The twelve apostles are so significant that the people of God build our faith upon the foundation 
of these 12 guys. So, who in the world are these 12 apostles? And what is an apostle? And how did they become apostles? And why are they the foundation of the people of God? So look with me at Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Also written by Luke. We're going to look at the gospel of Luke. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. The word of the Lord says, In these days he, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So for several chapters now, Luke has been showing us the growing conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. Jesus claims to be the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. Jesus claims to have the authority of God himself. And the Pharisees, as you might imagine, get angry. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, what we looked at last week, this anger, this conflict reaches the place to where the Pharisees are filled with fury, verse 11 says. And they discuss what they might do with Jesus. Now this isn't discussing what what might we do to increase his popularity or what might we do to help his ministry. When it says they're discussing what they might do with Jesus, they're discussing how to kill him, how to do away with him. And this is in response to Jesus redefining their understanding of the Sabbath. Again, we saw that last week. Jesus is claiming to be God in flesh, the fulfillment of the promised Messiah who would establish God's kingdom. But the Pharisees don't see it. And it's after this clash over the meaning of the Sabbath that Luke puts Jesus' mountainside prayer and the establishment of the 12 apostles. Now before we dig into the text itself, we should probably stop and ask a question the question is, when, when we're reading through the Bible and we come to a passage of Scripture like this, what should we do? How do we understand a passage of Scripture like this? And there are lots of ways to misinterpret this text. For example, this text isn't primarily teaching us to pray before we make big decisions. Obviously, that's an implication of the text, and that's not wrong. Jesus patterns the importance of prayer. He went away to pray. Here he prays all night before choosing the apostles. But Luke's main point in showing us this narrative, Luke's main point in including it here, I don't think is so that we would be like Jesus and pray all night long before important decisions. And this text isn't primarily about showing us that Jesus is chooses Jesus chooses all kinds of people. Now, is that true? Yes, he does. We're going to see that, and there's significance to that. Clearly, the apostles were this eclectic mix of people, but Luke's main purpose isn't just to show us 
the kind of people that Jesus chooses. In fact, one commentator I read this week even said that the main point of these verses is to give us a pattern for the ordination of young men into pastoral ministry. I don't think that's the main point of the text. I don't think that's what Luke is trying to show us, that the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate to us. So, when you are sitting in the morning at your table, Bible open, coffee in hand, and you're trying to study a text of Scripture, a text like this, here's an important question to ask. What is the author trying to tell them then? What is the author trying to tell them then, the the audience to whom this is written? What is God, through the Holy Spirit, who inspired Luke to write, trying to tell the people to whom Luke originally wrote? And then, what is the Holy Spirit seeking to tell us now? And to answer those questions, we can't read just a verse or two. We have to step back. We have to zoom out before we zoom in. We need to understand the context before we can understand the meaning of the text. Which is why I gave some background as to where we have been in Luke chapter 5 and Luke chapter 6 with Jesus doing these things which clearly communicate that he is the Messiah and the Pharisees and the the religious leaders pushing back more and more and more against that. So here, this is my hypothesis, what I would propose to you is the purpose of these verses. It seems to me that these verses are about us seeing Jesus as the Messiah. Seeing Jesus as the one who fulfills the hopes of the Old Covenant and the one who then establishes the foundation of the new covenant. And Jesus does this by choosing 12 apostles. Now you might be thinking, well how in the world does Jesus choosing 12 apostles have anything to do with him proving that he is the Messiah, the fulfillment of the old covenant, and that he is establishing the foundation of the new covenant? so glad you asked. I want to answer that by looking at four questions this morning. So if you're a note taker, we're going to have four main points, four questions this morning we're going to seek to answer. First, what is an apostle? What is an apostle anyway? Secondly, who were the apostles? Third, how did these men become apostles? And finally, why are the apostles the foundation for the people of God? Why are the apostles the foundation for the people of God? So what, who, how, and why? Number one, what is an apostle? Look at verse 13. And when day came, Jesus called his disciples, and he chose from them twelve whom he named Apostles. You might be wondering, well, wait a minute. I thought that as Jesus traveled along the seacoast, he saw, he saw some fishermen and he called them to himself and said, follow me. And they began to follow him. And that's how he formed the disciples. You would be right. That is how he formed the disciples. But here Luke is making a distinction in now saying from that group of disciples, he is now going to choose 12 to be apostles. 
The New Testament sometimes refers to the 12 as apostles. Sometimes the New Testament refers to the 12 as disciples, which could make us think that these are terms that are interchangeable. But there is actually a difference in the meaning between apostle and disciple. A disciple is literally a learner or a student. Someone who attaches themselves to someone else for the purpose of learning, being like the one that they are attached to. But the purpose of an apostle is selective. Apostle literally means one who is sent out from another. One who is sent out from another. Jesus was specifically sending out from himself these 12 men who would carry forward the mission of Jesus. This is not a position that was available to anyone or to everyone. Jesus selected these apostles by design. He gave them his unique blessing and authority. In fact, later, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, Luke tells us how these, the 12, who are now 11, because remember Judas betrayed Jesus and then took his own life, so the 12 is now down to 11. In Acts chapter 1, these 11 apostles are having a discussion, having a debate about whether or not they should kind of fill in this missing apostle now. Acts chapter 1 verse 21 shows us that the qualification for replacing Judas, as they ended up doing, was that it had to be an apostle, it had to be someone who had seen the ministry of Jesus. They had to see his resurrection and his ascension. This apostle had to have seen the risen Christ. And further, this apostle had to be chosen by God himself. Which is why you have this really strange thing happening in Acts chapter 1 where the apostles meet together and they, they sift through all of the potential applicants for filling this role of apostle. One who had seen Jesus, had seen the risen Christ with his own eyes. And they filter it down to two men, but they're not exactly sure what to do. Like, we could go either way here. Both of these candidates are strong candidates to fulfill this open, vacated position by Judas as an apostle. And so what do they do? They pray, and then they cast lots. They roll dice, recognizing, okay, we've done everything we can do. We're not sure which way to go, and so, God, we're going to pray. We're going to entrust this into your hands, believing that even the casting of the die is under your sovereign control, showing us that not only was an apostle one who had seen the risen Savior but was one who had been deputized by God himself to be an apostle. And this is why the apostle Paul calls himself an apostle, because in Acts chapter 9, he sees the risen Christ as Jesus appears to him, and God commissions him to go as an apostle. This I think helps us to understand why there are no apostles living today. Because to be an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Christ. You had to have had a personal invitation, a personal deputy, be personally deputized by God himself to go out and do that ministry. And there are some old people on planet earth, but no one is old enough to have seen Jesus alive. 
But this doesn't mean that the apostles are unimportant for us today. As we saw in Revelation, the foundation of the New Jerusalem, the foundation of the city of God, the place or the name by which the people of God are formed, our identity is built on the names of the apostles. But what in the world does that mean? What does it mean that the names of the 12 apostles are written on the foundation, the 12 foundations of the wall? Well, as I said earlier, whether you believe the new Jerusalem is a literal city in heaven or is the symbolic description of the people of God, the holy city of God's redeemed people, either way, there is a foundation. There's something fundamental that the apostles provide, that the apostles have done, that the apostles give us, something on which our very lives are built. And you might think, well, our very lives as Christians are built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is true. But how do we get the gospel of Jesus Christ? Jesus didn't actually write a book of the Bible personally, physically, in the flesh. He inspired it through his Holy Spirit, but he worked through the apostles. The ministry of all that Jesus said and did was handed down from the apostles to some who wrote and others who wrote on behalf of the, the apostles so that we have Jesus' teaching and Jesus' life as well as the teaching of the apostles in our Bibles today. This faith that we have comes as a gift. Like the gospel does not come to us intuitively. Like the gospel itself is not intuitive, meaning everyone just naturally, after they're born, after they get to a third grade reading level or a fifth grade re- reading level or a twelfth grade reading level, all of a sudden the light bulb goes on and they understand, oh yes, I understand the gospel now. It makes complete sense. I need the gospel. Now faith doesn't come that way. If it did, then Christians would be Unnaturally, unnaturally slanted towards those who were educated, those who could think intuitively, but faith doesn't come that way. The Bible says faith comes to us as a gift of God. And this gift is extended to us through words because faith comes by what? Hearing. Hearing the Word of God. So faith comes through the revelation of the Word of God. And the Word of God, the Bible, is not the record just of Jesus' teachings. But it's the teachings of the apostles as well. And even Jesus' teachings themselves are transmitted to us by his followers. So you can see how our faith rests on the gospel of God, but that gospel is transmitted through the apostles. So, in a way, our faith is resting on the foundation of the apostles' teaching. This is why in Acts chapter 2, when the early church begins to meet together, Their early worship services looked like this, according to Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And the fellowship, and to breaking of bread, and the prayers. The early church, when they gathered, they committed themselves, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What does this mean for us today? Well, it means that the apostles' teaching is important. The apostles 
are important. It's not just a random name of 12 guys, but somehow our faith is built upon their testimony, upon their ministry. So not only do we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, even as we're doing that right now, like right now we're devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, but it also means that as a church and as Christians, we evaluate our faithfulness based on what the apostles taught. The Bible, the testimony of the apostles, is our laser level to assure that our theology isn't crooked. This brings us to our second point this morning. If that's what an apostle is, then who are the apostles? Look at verse 14. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. As you look over those names, I mean, there's some, may just look like a list of random names. Some of those names are actually even popular today, some of them less so never met a Judas, maybe for good reason. But it is interesting the kind of men that Jesus chose as his apostles. So if you know anything about the lives of these men, you know that in the group you have fishermen like Peter and Andrew and James and John. But there's also a tax collector, which is really interesting. We saw Matthew or Levi as he was called. A few weeks ago we looked at Jesus' ministry to Levi in chapter 5, verses 27 and following, we saw how despised tax collectors were. These tax collectors were sellouts to the occupying government. They chose power and wealth over loyalty to their own people. And on the other extreme, we have Simon, who it says was a zealot. A zealot was someone who had incredible zeal for their national rights and freedoms. They hated the occupying force, the Romans, who existed. In fact, they were called, quite literally, people of the dagger. They would carry daggers under their cloak, and they would, from time to time, when the coast was clear and they wouldn't be seen, they would slash Roman soldiers behind the back of their knees with their daggers because they hated the occupying force. The zealots were right-wing extremists who were zealous to overthrow the government. Think about the contrast then that existed among these 12 men. Just think about Matthew and Simon. I mean, within Jesus' inner circle, you have a libertarian extremist and you have a pro-government sellout. Like, one fought with the sword to overthrow Rome, and the other one collected money, extorted money from his own people on behalf of Rome. And yet, in Jesus, they become part of the same community functioning side by side. Just think about the early conversations that must have existed between Simon and Matthew, right? Like, as they're traveling along on the wonderful Roman roads and Matthew says, yeah, see this road, guys? Hey, Simon, guess what? It's tax money that paved this road. The fact that you don't have calluses, yeah, you can thank the Romans for that. Simon mutters something under his breath about death to tyrants, maybe. 
And yet in Jesus, they become part of the same community. One author notes, these are people from diverse strata and perspectives woven together by Jesus into a newly formed community. And that's not even to mention Judas. And Luke gives us the note that Judas would betray Jesus. And so even within Jesus' inner circle, there were seeds of discord and rejection. All of these men, no matter their diversity, were drawn together by Jesus. What a powerful statement that is to the diversity of the church even today. People from different backgrounds, different political convictions, different education levels, different interests, even different, dare I say it, views on COVID. And yet we are joined together by a bonding agent stronger than the divisive pull of our opinions, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of these apostles, I think it's interesting, would not only share in the life and good times with Jesus, but all of these apostles would suffer on their way to glory. Tradition tells us that virtually every one of them suffered and died a violent death. Except for John, who suffered just humiliation in exile on a lowly island of Patmos as an old man. Tradition says that Bartholomew was crucified, that Thomas was thrust through with a spear and killed, that Peter was crucified upside down, that Simon the Zealot, according to tradition, was crucified in in Britain in the year 74, and the rest of the disciples suffered various kinds of martyrdom. So we do learn that these 12 apostles are a reminder that God indeed does use all kinds of people, and they are a reminder of the importance of keeping the gospel central in our churches. And they are also a reminder that followers of Jesus are called to suffer on our way to glory. If we were to follow out the walk of faith of these men, we would see that their walk of faith was not smooth and tree-lined. It was sometimes difficult and very hard. And I think this helps us to set realistic expectations about our own faith journey. The Christian walk of faith is it's less like running the Kentucky Derby and more like plowing a backwoods field. We put one foot in front of the other, one foot in front of the other, and we go down to the end of the row and we turn around and we come back again, faithfully following the Lord. I think we need more plow horse Christians, more Christians who are committed to the simple joys of daily obedience rather than the never-ending search for something spectacular. You see, when our expectation of the Christian walk is easy, smooth, or immediately gratifying, we set ourselves up for a life of daily disappointment when we find that that's not how it plays out. So, what kept these apostles faithful? 
like what powered them on the road ahead? I think it was the call of God in their lives. It was God's grace for them, just as it is God's grace in our lives now. Which leads us to our third of four questions this morning. The third question is this, how did these men become apostles? How did these men become apostles? Look at verse 12. In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples, and he chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. So question, how did these men become apostles? Answer, because they had recently graduated at the top of their class from apostleship seminary, right? Wrong. It's because they scored with remarkable proficiency in the pre-graduate examination for apostleship. Wrong. It's because they were well-connected to the powerful and the influential in Apostles Incorporated. Wrong. How did they become apostles? They became apostles because Jesus chose them. Jesus chose them. Why are you a Christian today? Because you repented and are trusting in Jesus? Yes. Because you turn from your sin and believe in Jesus' death on the cross for you? Yes. But all of that was possible only because of God's initiating work. God chose you. Ephesians chapter 1 could not be more clear when Paul writes to the Christians in Ephesus and says, Bless Be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Or if you skip down to Ephesians chapter 2, we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this faith is not your own doing. It, faith, is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may strut around thinking that somehow we found the answer. Somehow of all of the seekers, we were the one who found the path in the woods that led to the treasure. We were somehow brilliant enough or smart enough, logical enough to put the pieces together When the Holy Spirit of God who inspired our scripture tells us it comes to us as a gift. And I think Jesus knew that he was doing something new here. He knew that opposition was rising. He knew that he needed to form a new community around him. That if Jesus was going to be taken out of the picture, something else would have to be in place. New leadership was required. 
I don't think it's an accident that Luke places the choosing of the twelve immediately after this remark in verse 11 about the Pharisees being filled with fury and seeking what they might do to end Jesus' life. And so, Jesus prayed. And he prayed all night long. Luke says all night he continued in prayer. As I said earlier, the central theme of these verses, I I don't think it's pray all night long like Jesus. But just because it's not the central theme doesn't mean it's not a theme. Jesus' life is a pattern to us, even amidst all of the things that could have occupied Jesus' time. And let's face it, Jesus had, you know, generally more important things that were pulling on his time than us. Sometimes I'm prayerless because of so many lesser things that distract. And even amid all of the ministry needs, Jesus got a way to pray. We see that throughout the gospel narratives. Jesus making prayer a priority. And this was no different. He was about to choose the men on whom the weight and responsibility of the gospel message would rest. These men would take the good news of great joy to the world. And so Jesus prays. And the goal would be that we would all have regular time with the Lord in prayer. That we would all make prayer a priority. But there are also moments and seasons of life that seem to warrant extra prayer. Where we sense the responsibility or the burden or the darkness closing around us. Where we become aware of brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering or the need, the desperate need for our loved ones to be saved. And maybe it's prayer for the safety of a grandchild who is off to summer camp for the first time. Maybe it's an important decision about a major in school. Maybe it's feeling the weight about decisions regarding a relationship. Maybe it's a decision to move for a job or to take a new assignment. Maybe it's a decision in your path about your health or the health of a child or the health of a family member. Certainly Jesus prayed a lot. We see evidence of that throughout the scriptures. Jesus getting up early in the morning to pray. Jesus praying late at night. But this is the only time, this is the only time we have recorded where Jesus prayed all night long. Could it be that he sensed the the special gravity of this decision? This was important. These 12 men would be significant. Or to put it another way, these 12 men would be foundational. Which brings us to the final question this morning, and that is this. Why are the apostles the foundation of? the people of God. Why are the apostles the foundation for the people of God? Remember our passage in Revelation 21, 14, and the wall of the city of the New Jerusalem had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So if you think back to the Old Testament, 
all the way back to the book of Genesis, God made a covenant with Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12 and in Genesis chapter 15, God promises to bless Abraham, to make a nation of people through Abraham. God promises that through Abraham's offspring, God would bless the world. And according to God's promise, Abraham and his wife, although old and barren, had a son. And that son had a son. And that son had 12 sons. And these 12 great-grandchildren of Abraham became recipients of God's promise. According to God's design, they became the 12 tribes of Israel. And through these 12 tribes, God establishes a people. And God lives among this people. But it was all temporary. It was a short-term solution to an eternal problem. The problem was, how can sinful humans be brought back into relationship with a holy God? And with these 12 tribes, God demonstrated his love. He gave them his law. He showed them that sin requires death. He also gave them the sacrificial system, showing them that sacrifice remedies sin. But the Old Testament sacrifice of animals was only a temporary sacrifice. It covered, not cleansed, sin. So, God sent Jesus, his son. And Jesus lived without sin, and Jesus died on the cross in the place of all who trust in him. Jesus was the sacrifice. Jesus was the substitute for all who believe, all whose eyes are open, all who turn to realize that we are sinners in need of reconciliation with God. And Jesus secures our adoption as sons and daughters of God. Jesus came to inaugurate a new covenant, a new covenant, not in the blood of sacrificial animals like the old covenant, Jesus came to inaugurate a new covenant in his blood as he would tell these very same apostles on the night that he was arrested. So knowing this, you can see why choosing 12 apostles is not arbitrary. Jesus is forming a new community. Jesus is showing how the promises And purpose of the 12 tribes are now realized, now actualized, now brought to fruition, to reality in himself. And he now has the authority and the power to form a new covenant community that's built not on the 12 tribes of Israel, but on the teaching of the 12 apostles. Which is why rather than the names of 12 tribes on a banner at the head of each tribe as they marched, as was true in the Old Testament, We now, as believers, are a part of a city, a part of a people. And the foundation that we have has the names of the 12 apostles etched into it. Brothers and sisters, we are grafted into a new family. A family that God the Father planned. God the Son accomplished. 
And God, the Holy Spirit applies. Not only that we would be saved from our sin, not only that we would be sealed for an inheritance in heaven one day, but that we even now would be made sons and daughters of the Most High God. And in grace, our faith is built on the foundation of the teaching of these 12 apostles. In other words, true to God's promise, he blessed Abraham. And he blessed the whole world because of Abraham's offspring named Jesus Christ. So that today, trusting men and women as varied as you can imagine are brought into a new dwelling place for God, a new Jerusalem built on the foundation of Jesus' teaching and the faithful ministry of these 12 apostles. That means regardless of your background, regardless of your family dynamics, regardless of your perceived worthiness or unworthiness, this is our reality. That we are a part of the people of God today, built on the foundation of the apostles, every bit as much as the people of God we read about in the Old Testament, who by faith worshipped Yahweh and were under the banner of the twelve tribes of Israel. God has a people. And by faith, we are grafted into that people to receive everything that that entails by way of inheritance. This is who we are. Praise be to God. Would you stand with me?